You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to pick up um, where we left off a couple of weeks ago in our sermon series through the book of James. So, um, many years ago and many churches ago, I found myself intentionally avoiding a particular person in that church. Uh, He was a very difficult person to interact with. He was socially awkward. Uh, He could sometimes be uh, somewhat monopolizing in regards to your time. Conversations typically seemed to be all about him, and so it was just very unpleasant for me to have any kind of interaction with him. And so after the service was over, I would pretend that I did not see him, wouldn't catch his eye. And I'd I'd move towards others in the congregation who were easier for me to talk to, who were easier for me to deal with. I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but but I did it. Confession time. And I I went to be with those that were just more pleasant to interact with. It was just easier just to avoid him altogether. And my disregard for him uh, eventually even got to the point where I found myself bad-mouthing him behind his back, and somebody had to rebuke me, and that was a a, a wake-up call for me, and I'm greatly thankful for that. Now, now during that time, I knew that my attitude wasn't the best, but it also didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. It seemed like a small thing compared to other, more worse things that I could be doing. Uh, But I did not realize the magnitude of the sin that I was involved in in that moment. It was the sin of partiality. Uh, John MacArthur defines partiality as treating one person better than, a, better than another person for some reason or other that you just simply prefer them. Uh, there is no inherent, no intrinsic, no needful reason for such treatment. And that's a problem because people with equal needs are to be treated equally. Partiality, favoritism, uh, I defined it this way a couple of weeks ago, it's, is making unjust judgments and discrimination of showing favor or withholding favor exclusively on the basis of external temporal realities instead of spiritual, eternal realities. And when we do this, we're essentially saying, this person is more worth my attention, my kindness, my love, my help, or my engagement more than this person. And James gives us an example right here in chapter 2. We took a look at this a couple weeks ago where he gives us this scenario of a church meeting. And two people walk in to the church meeting. And and obviously one is very wealthy and powerful and influential. His clothes are dazzling. Uh, He has a gold ring on his finger. Uh, Literally the text says in the Greek that that he's a gold-fingered man. Uh, that, was, that would have been a sign of just extreme riches in the first century. But also coming into the church is a destitute man dressed in filthy clothes. And in verse 3, it says that they give the very best seat to the rich man, giving him lots of attention and deference, while they turn around and barely acknowledge the poor man, and they tell him to, to stand in the back or, or sit on the floor. And look at what James says in verse 4. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Some translations say evil motives. Another translation says evil designs. And it isn't hard to imagine what those evil motives are. 
when you consider the fact that the churches that are receiving James's letter would have been full of poor, persecuted people, outcast in the culture, low on the societal ladder. And so now you've got this wealthy Roman nobleman visiting your church, a man of influence, a man of power. And so, of course, there's going to be this temptation to really show this guy lots of favor and lots of attention, lots of deference, because, you know, he could be a huge help to you and to your church and to your congregation's status in the culture. That, that makes sense to us. I, I think we can identify with that. And so you can just imagine this congregation is just tripping over themselves to serve this person at the expense of showing any mercy or kindness to the poor person. And so if that's the case, then this congregation is not only not loving the poor man, guess what? They actually are not loving the one to whom they're showing partiality to. Because the partiality isn't coming from a desire to love the rich man. It's really more about what benefit they can gain from him. So they, they size up the wealthy visitor. They perceive a net gain through association with this person, and they want to benefit from that. So it isn't as much about meeting his need or serving him much as, it is, as much as it is about meeting their own needs and serving themselves. And if we're honest... If we're honest, we all have a tendency towards unjust partiality more than we think. Whether it's favoritism rooted in someone's looks, someone's race, someone's socioeconomic background, how popular someone may be, or maybe based on on whether or not someone is like us in their hobbies and in their interests, there is a pull we have to give certain people more grace, more forgiveness, more generosity, more benefit of the doubt, more patience, more mercy, more love than we may give to other types of people. And that selfish partiality comes because we perceive a net gain in the person to whom we are showing partiality too. Could be something like what James describes, favoring the, the rich and influential because of uh, what you can get out of it. Or it can be <clears throat> as seemingly innocent as person A is socially awkward and really unpleasant for me to deal with, so that's a net loss. Person B is a lot like me, has similar interests and hobbies, and is a lot of fun to be around. That's a net gain. And so my modus operandi every week after church is totally excluding and ignoring people like person A and comfortably spending all of my time with and giving all my attention and care to people like person B. And so we begin to value others based on what we can get from them. And James here is warning us that partiality is not just a problem out there in the world, it's a problem in the church. And ultimately, it's a problem in our own hearts. But the good news is that James shows us a better way, he shows us a better path forward, a path that liberates us from the bondage to self-centeredness and puts us on the path of real love. So let's walk that path together. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We are in James chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which means we're going to start in verse 8. And read on down through verse 13. Pardon me, it was two weeks ago that we, we read the first part of chapter 2. Start in verse 8. Word of God says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, 
You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on me, a sinner, and have mercy on this room full of sinners, and display your mercy this morning by helping the preacher to preach rightly and by helping the listeners to hear rightly your word. Speak to us, O Lord, through your Spirit, through this good word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So last time we considered the peril of of partiality. This morning we want to think about the path to freedom. Uh, James here gives us four exhortations to release us from bondage to self, liberating us to really love others. And the first thing James says is that we need to remember the royal law. Remember the royal law. Look at verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You are doing right. Now, that phrase, royal law, that's an unusual way to describe the law in the Bible. It's it's kingdom language. If you go back up to verse 5, James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And so what James is calling us to embrace is not just some arbitrary, random rule. Instead, we as believers are heirs of the kingdom. We've been chosen, James says up in verse 5. We've been brought into the king's family, into his very household. And who is the king? Well, remember James opens his letter in chapter 1, verse 1, declaring the kingship of Jesus. He calls Him the Christ, the anointed King, and therefore as citizens of His kingdom, as sons and daughters in the royal family, any charge He lays upon us is a royal charge, a royal law which is binding for all who would be a part of His kingdom. And the royal law, according to James, is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, That's a quotation from the Law of Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, The Law of Moses, of course, was like a massive decree from the king to his people Israel. And buried in that law, in all of the hundreds of laws in the Torah, is something that is rather inconspicuous and even obscure compared to things like the Ten Commandments. And it's found in Leviticus 19, where God says to His people, You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus takes this inconspicuous command in Leviticus, and He raises it to one of the most famous and important sayings in the entire Bible when He was asked in Matthew 22, "'Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law?' And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Of course, love of neighbor first derives from love of God. If you love God rightly, you love your neighbor rightly. And Jesus says if you love rightly, then you are fulfilling the whole law. And you can see how this works out when you think about the different laws in the Old Testament. For example, there's no better way to summarize the Ten Commandments than to love God, which are the first four commandments, and love neighbor, which is the last six commandments. If you love God, you're not going to have other gods. If you love God, you're not going to take His name in vain. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them or murder them or lie about them. So God's requirement for His people in the Old Testament was love God and love neighbor. And what we discover in James's epistle is that the law of love continues to be binding on His new covenant people. As uh, I heard one teacher say, love is the ruling principle at the core of God's moral demands, a ruling principle which is then worked out in our everyday lives. Jesus said to His disciples, if you love Me, you will obey My commands. That's love of God. And James here says, if you want to do well, you love your neighbor. So this is the royal law for God's people. And I think it's very helpful that Scripture doesn't just say, love your neighbor. What does that mean? He goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. That really fleshes out what biblical love really is. And that's a good thing because the world can define love in different ways, right? Uh, Some associate love with mere sentimental feelings, warm fuzzies. Uh, Some believe love to be a total acceptance and affirmation of everything that a person is and does. But the Bible defines loving treatment uh, towards somebody as treatment that mirrors how we treat ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. So do you love yourself? Do you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, how I love me, let me count the ways? Is that that what you do? Do you look in the mirror in the morning and your heart is just gripped and moved with sentimental delight in what you see? I hope not. Uh, That's not what the Bible means when it talks about how you love yourself. Now, if you do do that, we'll have another sermon that will address those kinds of things. But I, I found Alec Motier's comments very helpful here. He says, If we want to know how to love our neighbors, then we must ask a prior question, how do we love ourselves? Never, it is to be hoped, with an emotional thrill. Rarely, as a matter, with much sense of satisfaction. Mostly, with pretty wholesale disapproval. Often, it comes with complete loathing, but always, always with concern, care, and attention. When we catch sight of our faces in the mirror first thing in the morning, the word, ah, comes spontaneously from our lips. Yet at once, we take that revolting face into the bathroom, we wash it, and we tend it, and we make it as presentable as nature will allow. And so it goes on through the day. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. This is the model on which we are to base our relationships to all to whom we owe neighborly duty, right? Whose whose, uh, teeth do you brush in the morning? Whose mouth do you feed when you're hungry? Who, Who are you most interested in taking care of throughout the day? Typically, it's you. 
Motier goes on to say that everything conspires today to define love primarily in emotional terms. Scripturally, love is to be defined in caring terms, for the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expand on ourselves. I find that helpful. And it's not that emotions are not important. Uh, To the degree that we are holy and godly is the degree to which our emotions and affections will be what they need to be. But at the same time, loving our neighbor is not exclusively about emotions and feelings. Again, it's about the meaning of needs. It's about considering what is good and best for the other person. And sometimes we can and must move forward with acts of love and simply ask God to help our feelings catch up later if need be. Because as sinners, we can never expect to have perfect emotions and feelings until heaven. So don't think you've got to wait for that before you can start loving someone. And don't make this more complicated than it is. Don't overthink this. Simply give your neighbor the kind of care and compassion and attention as you'd give to yourself. Don't just consider your own interests, Paul writes in Philippians 2, but consider and look out for the interests of others. I know that's not our default. Our sinful default is to think about our own interest, which is exactly why we slide into favoritism. And we've got to fight against that self-centered impulse, and we've got to aggressively move forward to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, that is challenging enough, but it gets even better. (laughs) What makes it even more challenging is when we consider who our neighbor is. Jesus once was in a conversation with a man who had asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what's written in the law? And the man answered, love God and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus said, that's right, do that and you'll live. And this man, seeking to justify himself, asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, his question was coming from a place of self-justification. He wanted to see himself as a law keeper. He wanted to be seen as innocent and righteous because what he had done, obviously, was he had drawn a circle around himself and he's put some people in that circle and he thinks, these are my neighbors and I love them. These are the people that I like. These are the people who are like me. These are the people who I feel good about. But whoever is not in the circle, whoever is on the outside is not a neighbor, so he's not obligated to love them. And before we throw stones at that man, we all have an impulse to do this, to show that kind of partiality. We may not think that we hate anyone outside of our circle, but we sure don't love them. And do you remember how Jesus answers this man and how he answers us? He explodes that little circle by telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's in Luke chapter 10. And what was startling about the parable was that first century Jews didn't think of good Samaritans. That wasn't a category that they had in their minds. They thought of Samaritans as bad Samaritans. Uh, They were a mixed race. They weren't pure Jews. Uh, They were seen as religious heretics. Uh, There was great hostility between these two groups. They were enemies. And shockingly, in Jesus' parable, uh, the Samaritan is the hero, and he helps a person in need Shockingly, it's a Jewish person in need. And Jesus' point is that your neighbor is anyone that God brings across your path with needs. Their race shouldn't matter. Whether your friends or enemies shouldn't matter. 
Whether you have the same beliefs or not shouldn't matter. Whether or not you have similar interests and hobbies shouldn't matter. Whether you are of the same political party or not, that shouldn't matter. Whether or not the, that person's personality irritates you shouldn't matter. Whether or not that p- person's theological beliefs line up with your own shouldn't matter. Whether or not they have a lifestyle that you agree with shouldn't matter. Whether or not the conversations are awkward shouldn't matter. If God brings you two together, guess what? Your neighbors. And the important thing is not who they are. The important thing is what do they need? How can I love them? How can I serve them in this moment? It's exactly how we are to respond every time we come to this place every single Sunday to worship. And as people are coming into this building, you may know them or they may be visitors. Uh, You may be best buddies or someone may really irritate you. Uh, You may be extroverted, or you may be introverted. doesn't matter. Your neighbors are coming into this place, and the royal law of love from King Jesus is telling you to get over yourself and get into their lives and show care and compassion and attention. Sometimes loving your neighbor means asking that person how you can pray for them. Sometimes it may mean asking how you can assist if you know they're going through financial hardship. Sometimes it may simply mean not ignoring them and not pretending that they don't exist, but instead catching their eye, warmly greeting them, giving them a loving embrace. You never know how much just a simple act of kindness can impact a person depending on what they're going through. So make it your mission when you come into this place not to be served, but to serve. Sit with someone you've never sat with before. You know, kind of switch it up a little bit. Some of y'all sit in the same spot every time. I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying that's a a creative way maybe to get into other people's lives is to move a few rows back. Oh, I didn't know you go to this church. That might be cool. Uh, During our monthly fellowship meals, break bread with someone you've never eaten with before. Or, check this out, get really edgy and invite someone over to your house that you've never invited before. Let's push ourselves, and let's even go beyond that. Find out what needs are and meet them. Don't think of people as net gains or net losses. Think of all as people to love and serve. Do that without regard as to whether or not others are serving you. Uh, Live that way inside and outside the church walls, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, and watch yourself and watch others. And watch this church be transformed big time as we together remember the royal law of the king. That's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, we need to know the seriousness of breaking it, it being the law. We need to know the seriousness of breaking it. Jerry Bridges has a book out there called Respectable Sins. I haven't read it, but I really like the title. And the idea is that there are certain things, certain sins that we tolerate, uh, certain sins that we minimize. Sins like impatience, anxiety, anger, envy, gossip, slander, and a host of others. But I think favoritism would be a good one to put on that list of respectable sins as well. And yet there's nothing respectable about partiality. It's a really big deal because it breaks the king's law, and therefore it is sin. So look at verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, we tend to coddle up, to coddle with the respectable sins, 
and, and we think we can do just fine with maybe a little bit of partiality here and a, a little bit of gossip over there and maybe some occasional irritability over here. That's okay because it's not like I'm committing murder or adultery or anything. I mean, I'm faithful in the really big areas, so I don't no need to concern myself in the little areas, right? Wrong. Look at verse 10. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's really hard-hitting, y'all, when you think about it. If you commit partiality or you plug in any other respectable sin, if you gossip after church today, if you're irritable towards your kids, if you say an unloving, unkind word to your wife, hypothetically speaking, imagine you do well in 99% of things. And we know that's hypothetical because none of y'all come close to 99%. And, and me neither. But, but hypothetically, you do well in 99% of things, and then you tell one white lie, or say one unkind word, or commit one act of favoritism. You become guilty in regards to the whole law. <clears throat> and you might say, well, that seems really extreme. <clears throat> why, why does James say that? Well, he explains it in the next verse. Uh, look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. James's point is that there is a unity in the law of God. Uh, the whole law hangs together. The law is not isolated, disconnected, random principles for life. No. Look, uh, look carefully at verse 11 again. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. You see, you see what James is getting at here? The focus is not on the law in isolation. The focus is on the one who said, the one who spoke the law. James is not here saying that murder and adultery are identical sins. Rather, he's saying that to break either of those laws is to go against the one person from whom the laws came, the one person who spoke those laws into being. So this isn't merely about breaking a law in and of itself. It's about rebellion against a person, namely God, namely the king. You may murder, you may commit adultery, you may commit gossip, or you may commit partiality. They're all different sins, but they are all striking out against the same God. They're all violating the royal law. Think of it this way. Some people think of obedience to God like a, like a pile of individual rocks, and each rock is a good deed. And the more good deeds you do, the larger the rock pile gets. And with each sin you commit, the rock pile gets smaller. So if you do a lot of good deeds, then you've got a big rock pile, and God's happy. That's not the right way to look at it. James sees the law and obedience to it not like a pile of rocks, but more like a sheet of glass that you hit with a hammer. And you can strike that glass at any point, and the whole thing is shattered. And so you can't, you can't pick and choose which parts of the law to keep and which to break. And, and, and think that you're flying under God's radar, you can't do that. Because all the laws hang together because they flow forth from the same person, and they're all rooted in His very character, and they're all close to His heart. Think of it another way. Imagine a king ruling over ten territories, and you're causing an uprising in just two of them. 
Can you, can you go to the king? Can you say to the king, well, I'm doing fine in eight of those territories. I'm not causing any trouble in, in, in those places, just in these two smaller territories. So that's no big deal, right? Wrong. It's still treason. It's still treason. Any sin is an attempt to remove God from the center and place yourself on the throne. So sin is not about breaking a principle. It's about offending a person. It's about offending God. The Puritan Thomas Manton is helpful when he writes that while you cannot from this passage conclude that all sins are equal, they are all deadly. In other words, there are no respectable sins. And so at that point, as we are confronted with this, we we might say, well, thank goodness we are not under the law, we're under grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1. And so I don't have to be too worried about this because God will forgive me. Well, the good news is that it is true that God graciously and generously forgives and that the blood of Christ washes away the sins, all sins, of all who seek forgiveness in Him. But on the other hand, this does not mean that there is no accountability for how we are to live. And that's where James goes next when he urges us to consider the coming judgment. Consider the coming judgment. Now, as believers, we are not under the law in the sense that we are under the law's condemnation, And certainly, we cannot be saved, we cannot earn God's favor by keeping the law. Verse 10 has already exposed all of us as lawbreakers, uh, so no one's innocent. And so, the salvation that we enjoy comes exclusively through the grace and mercy of God and not from our own attempts to be good. But sometimes, those realities, those wonderful truths, lead Christians to think that it doesn't matter how we live, and that certainly isn't the case. And so James writes in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There are expectations for how you and I are to live. God saves you by grace, and then He gives you a law, a royal law of liberty. Now, we tend not to associate law with liberty, right? We tend to think of law simply in terms of restrictions, but that's not the point of the law for the people of God. You think about the Old Testament people, God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. Did He give them the law before or after their redemption? If you recall in the book of Exodus, Israel was in bondage. They were slaves to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They belonged to an evil tyrant, and God comes in and He liberates them. He redeems them from bondage, and He sets them free. But their newfound freedom doesn't mean that they're free to continue in the paganism and idolatry that they were in in Egypt. They aren't freed up to be autonomous so they can just do their own thing and go their own way and chart their own path. They, they weren't saved by grace so that they could indulge in sin. Biblically, that's not what freedom is. Instead, God takes them away from the house of slavery. He brings them into His household He brings them to Mount Sinai, and after their redemption, He gives them the law. He says, you were once a part of Pharaoh's household, and now you are a part of my family. You were once a people under Egyptian rule, now you are my people. This is how you may have lived when you were in bondage to Pharaoh, and these were the ways of Egypt. But now you are in my house, 
and these are my ways. And God gives them the gift of His law to show them how to live as free peoples. He says, you are a chosen nation, you are a royal priesthood, and I'm giving you this law to show something of my ways and my character so that you can be a light to the nations as you reflect who I am through the keeping of my laws, so that the nations too might come to know God and be saved. As one writer puts it, God gives His law to Israel in order to safeguard the liberty which He has achieved for them. And so the law of God is not a new bondage, but is given to mark the end of the old bondage and the beginning of a true freedom. That's exactly how redemption works with the new covenant people of God. God has rescued us from bondage to sin and to Satan. He's given us mercy and forgiveness, but He didn't save you or me to be autonomous. He saved us to serve. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, He saved us not by works, but unto good works that He has prepared in advance for us to do. And He gives us the royal law found in His Word and summed up in love. And he says, this is how free peoples are to live as we show something of God's ways and character to a lost world around us so that they too might come to know God and be saved. And so, uh, the Apostle Peter says of you, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or you have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's one I really like in 2 Corinthians 5. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so freedom in the Bible... Freedom in the Bible is never described as pure autonomy, and there's actually no such thing. And freedom is never described as sin. Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin, as is evidenced by the sea of people addicted to sexual immorality and materialism and substances of all kinds and self-centered living. The things the world promises as freedom always in the end prove to be bondage. And so the Bible describes freedom as loving God and loving others. And the glory of the new covenant and why it is superior to the old covenant is that in the new covenant, God writes His law on the hearts of all of His people so that all of His people have the power, have the freedom to actually slay those selfish, sinful inclinations and actually obey Him. And so James now reminds us to live as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And for the believer, that doesn't mean hell. Being judged doesn't mean hell. Hell and condemnation is never the end of the story for the believer. But it does mean some measure of accountability. The Bible does talk about our works being judged. Romans 14.10 speaks of believers as standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And we don't know what all that looks like. I know the Bible does lead us to believe that certain, that certain rewards we will receive in the age to come are rooted in how we live now. What I do understand is that the Bible teaches us that what we do now matters later. And we will be called to give an account for all of our lives, even for the small things. Even every idle word that we speak, Jesus says, will be called to account. Our whole lives 
will be examined, including whether or not we showed partiality. Now, for the believer, that should be a motivation. That accountability should be a motivation. For the unbeliever, that should cause a sober-minded fear, which hopefully leads to genuine repentance. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Wow. That hits hard. Now, James here is beginning to tip his hand a little bit regarding to where he's about to take this discussion, starting in verse 14, which we won't get to until next week. But where James is going is that the proof of justifying faith, the proof that you're a real believer, a real Christian, is works. James gives an example here in verse 13 in regards to works of mercy. Uh, The person who habitually shows partiality and favoritism, who is habitually merciless towards the needs of others and is selfishly discriminatory in whom he will care for and whom he will not, is one who himself has never known God's saving mercy. And if he continues down that merciless road, he never will. He may say he's a Christian. He may say he loves Jesus, but he lacks evidence of mercy in his life. That's a serious red flag. And we'll see next week that James is going to carry this discussion into considering two types of faith. One that expresses itself in mere lip service versus one that from that faith flows deeds and works itself out in everyday life. Now, I want to make it clear, and we'll talk more about this as we continue on through James, but make no mistake, the grounds for our salvation is not in our works. Faith in Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, is the grounds. And verse 13 is not saying that our mercy has purchasing power in regards to salvation, but it evidently does have evidential value. Evidential value. Neither Jesus nor James would see mercy as something that is meritorious and that would earn your salvation. Instead, mercy flows from a heart that has already been gripped by God's saving mercy. That's the point of the parable that Carrie read earlier in the service about the unmerciful servant who had a massive debt eliminated and then would not forgive the one who owed him a tiny debt, and the master threw him into jail because of his wickedness? Why? Because he didn't really get what happened to him. If he did, he he wouldn't have been so unmerciful himself. His heart was never truly gripped by mercy. Or you think about the parable of the prodigal son, which several of us here just got done studying on Wednesday night. That was a tremendous study. In that parable... The father, who represents God, is so thrilled that his younger son has returned after a life of sin and selfishness, and he's repentant, and he seeks forgiveness, and the father forgives, and in celebration throws a party for for that younger son. But the older son, the elder brother, who represents the self-righteous religious Pharisee, says, there is no way I'm going to that party. And he refuses to celebrate, and he bears bitterness and unforgiveness towards his brother. Why? Because he himself doesn't understand mercy, and he refuses to show mercy. And he is lost, because the Scriptures say, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And James is showing us that the way of the believer is the way of mercy. There's no place for favoritism in the church, no place for grudges, 
No place for gossip and slander and other merciless deeds that violate the royal law of liberty. But verse 13 doesn't end there, and I'm glad it doesn't. It ends with a reminder that above all else, we must hope in God's mercy. We must hope in God's mercy. After some sobering warnings about judgment, James suddenly bursts forth with the exclamation, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, there's some debate about exactly what that means. Some believe that the mercy James speaks of here is our own acts of mercy, which will serve as our vindication in the final judgment because it's evidence that we're truly saved. I think there's some good reason to interpret it that way, but I also say that we can't stop there. I think ultimately James's exclamation must point us back to God's mercy. Because for one thing, any decent act of mercy that you or I exhibit is only happens because God's uh, because of God's merciful work in our hearts. But more than that, if we're being honest, we know that even our acts of mercy are inconsistent and tainted. We are far from perfect. One moment we may be merciful, and then another moment we find ourselves falling back into favoritism or into gossip or into grudges or mixed motives. You know, Jesus told that man that if you love God and love your neighbor, you will live. And if that's the final word, then Deemer Webb is already a dead man. I'm already dead. I I failed to do that. James just told me that. He just told me that if I break the law, at one point, I'm guilty of breaking the whole of it. And I know that I've broken the royal law in many points. And you know that's true of you too. So we deserve God's eternal judgment in hell. And so while James is teaching us that good works is a fruit of salvation, it's not the root of our salvation. And so our final hopes for mercy do not rest in our own tainted, inconsistent mercy. Thank God for that. They rest instead on God's perfect and faithful mercy, a mercy that was demonstrated when He looked down on sinners like you and me, and He did not treat us according to how impressive we were or how rich we were and how attractive and powerful we were or anything like that. He did not show partiality partiality to those things because... And that's wonderful because most of us then wouldn't be saved. (laughs) Uh, He instead treats us on the basis of our need. Not selfishly. Not uh, He he doesn't look at us and see a net gain. There is no net gain. Uh, We have nothing to offer God but filthy rags. Uh, Unlike us, God shows wonderful, unconditional love and mercy. And so Jesus Christ came down from heaven, and He became one of us, and He became the only man who is able to do what we could not do, he perfectly fulfilled the royal law, loving God and loving his neighbor as himself. He lived that way, standing in our place as our representative. And this perfect man then also received God's judgment in our place. As our substitute, he was treated like a lawbreaker, paying the price for our crimes. And who would have thought that? Who would have thought? That's so crazy, no one could have made that up. A king dying for usurpers and rebels? But that's what triumphant mercy does. No amount of sin could withstand the tidal wave of mercy and grace that God unleashes to wash away the transgressions of all who had hoped in His mercy. And so we sing, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. God's 
undeserved mercy has triumphed over our deserved judgments. Judgment does not have the final word for those who trust in Him. Mercy does. And if you have truly received such tender mercy and such amazing grace, the King now charges you through His royal law of liberty, go now and do likewise. Extend the same mercy. Show no partiality. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray.